Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. This is from the top of Sulphur Mountain, just outside the town of Banff. It's one of the most picturesque views in the Canadian Rockies. A trolley takes you to the top of the mountain where you stand looking at peak after peak, stretching off into a distance to a virtual sea of mountains. When the sun is shining and the snow is glistening, is a breathtaking scene. On top of the mountain, there's a restaurant as well as a herd of about 30 mountain sheep. They have become very tame over the years and have taken to begging handouts from the tourists. They love anything salty, and that is the problem. These sheep are actually starving to death on a diet of peanuts, potato chips, popcorn, licorice, and even salty plastic bags. As a result, the herd has been neglecting its normal grass diet, and consequently the animals are losing weight. And the females no longer produce enough high-quality milk to nourish their lambs. One of the park wardens said, Sheep develop a taste for this kind of junk. It is pathetic to see, but there is really very little we can do about it. I wish people would realize that their kindness really amounts to cruelty. You know what that teaches us this morning? Those sheep have actually become junk food junkies. And sadly, many of God's spiritual sheep are addicted to junk food, only it's the kind that produces spiritual malnourishment. They have, in essence, became spiritual junk food junkies. Now, junk food is fascinating stuff. The problem with it is is that it never tastes bad. It always tastes good. Take this from someone who once ate an entire box of Little Debbie Swiss rolls in just one day. It's a gift. Nor is it that junk food immediately destroys us. It never does. The problem is it has very little or no nutritional value, and it also spoils our appetite. So it is with spiritual junk food. When it spoils our appetite for God's solid food and addicts us to that which is only superficially satisfying, the result is spiritual starvation in our own lives and danger to the lives of those people who also depend upon us. But there is a way to avoid all of this. We're going to be spending the next two or three sermons learning what it means to abide in the vine. First, let me make it clear that this passage has meaning for believers only. Any non-believer trying to apply these truths will become hopelessly confused. Jesus was not describing how one becomes a Christian, but how one lives as a Christian after he or she have placed their faith in him. After hearing of Jesus' imminent departure from this world on the eve of his crucifixion, Fear must have gripped the disciples like a steel vice. How could they possibly go on without him? In the previous chapter, Jesus had said, There's hope for you. One day you are going to be in heaven. So see the big picture. Get a handle on your destiny. And so don't let your heart be troubled. 
Now, here in John chapter 15, he puts in the clutch, changes the gears a bit, and gives us a message, not so much dealing with hope in heaven, but rather about help on earth. Look at verse 1 with me. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. In John 15:1, Christ gives us the final and seventh great I am statement when he declares, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. All the conversation must have stopped at this powerful pronouncement. The force of his words were, you all know how Israel is pictured as a vine that is meant to produce refreshing fruit. Well, I am the fulfillment of all that that symbol suggests. Now, there have been many guesses about what could have occasioned Christ's parable of the vine and the branches, which extends over the first half of John 15. But it's impossible to be certain of the cause. Since the preceding chapter concludes with the words, Come and now let us leave, it would seem that the Lord and his disciples left the upper room at this point and began that quiet walk across the city of Jerusalem down into the Kidron Valley that brought them to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. As I said, we do not know the exact occasion for this parable. We only know that vines were visible everywhere in Judea, and the image of the vine had already been widely used in reference to Israel. When Jesus says he is the true vine, that is implying that there must also be false vines. So the truly extraordinary thing about the use of his image in the Old Testament is that it is always brought forth as a symbol of Israel's degeneration rather than her fruitfulness. Listen to how Isaiah chapter 5 describes this. Now let me sing a song to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out his stones and planted with it the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it so it ex he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. The point of Isaiah's reference is that the vine has run wild, producing sour grapes. In Jeremiah 2.21, God had demanded of the nation, How then have you turned yourself before me into a degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? In Hosea, he lamented, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. You see, God had originally planned that Israel to be in the promised land to be a means of revealing his word to the world and teaching all the other nations about his grace. Israel was to flourish as a living example of how obedience bears the fruit of righteousness. Moreover, the Lord promised to bless Israel as the nation's relationship of trust grew stronger. But Israel failed in all of this. So by declaring himself the true vine, Jesus takes the place of Israel, claiming to be the authentic, healthy vineyard the nation had failed to become. Just as the father had tended the failed vineyard of Israel, he would tend the flourishing vineyard now of the son. But the majority of humanity, even today, has rejected him. 
In Matthew 21, Jesus tells a similar parable illustrating Israel's rejection of God's messengers, which would culminate in the murder of Jesus himself. Jesus speaking here says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers, and then he went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took the slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him and seize the inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in the proper seasons. Jesus then said to them, did you never read in the scripture the stone which the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone? This has came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. What Jesus is telling us is that Israel's apostasy made it an empty vine, and for a long time this disqualified them as a, cha a channel for God's blessings. The blessing now comes from union with Christ, who is the true vine. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may, be, that it may bear more fruit. Now, this verse has caused a lot of confusion, as it seems to say, that if a Christian isn't bearing fruit, they will be taken out of the vine and thus lose their salvation. But that is not what it's saying. If you have a Strong's Concordance, you'll see that the word for takes away can be translated takes away as removing, but it can also be translated to lift up. And this makes much more sense in the context of these verses. In fact, I think it makes the most sense contextually linguistically, and logically. I favor the definition to lift up for a couple reasons. First, these two verses in, introduce the illustration in summary fashion describing the general care of a vine dresser nurturing a vine. Vine dressers are rarely seen cutting off branches during the growing season. Instead, they carry a bundle of strings and a pair of pruning shears as they work their ways down the road. They carefully lift the sagging branches and tie them to the trellis, a procedure that's called training. They also strategically snip smaller shoots from branches in order to maximize their yield of fruit, which is called pruning. But the verse makes better sense, and the sequence of the verb is better if the first and primary meaning of the word is lifted up. In that case, the sentence would read, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up to keep it from trailing on the ground. 
The same word is used there in John 11:41, where we are told that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. And then again in Luke 17, where the people lifted up their voices. It would be strange, granting this emphasis, if the first thing mentioned is the carrying away of unproductive branches. But it is not at all strange to emphasize that the gardener first lifts up their branches so that they may be better exposed to the sun and so that fruit will develop properly. Second, this lifting up is precisely what is first done to the vines, as anyone who has watched them being cared for knows. You see, grapes are not like squash or pumpkins that develop quite well while they lie up on the ground. They must hang free. Consequently, any branch that lies on the ground is unproductive. For this reason, I think the translation to lift up should be preferred. And if this is the case, then the first thing the Father is said to do is to lift the Christian closer to himself. To translate that into spiritual terms, it means that the Father first creates a sense of true devotion in the Christian. We now turn to the second part. If Jesus promise, promises us to prune us, that we may be even more fruitful. Since all believers, those who abide in Christ and he in them, it says will bear spiritual fruit of some type. And so there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. John the Baptist challenges hearers to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Contrasting true and false teachers, Jesus said, every good tree bears forth good fruit, but the bad tree bears forth bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now, before you get too nervous, there may be times when all of us as believers have lapses, when we all fail to be as faithful to Christ as we could be. That happens to everyone in here. But true branches through whom the life of the vine flows cannot ultimately fail to produce fruit. Now, another popular misconception equates fruit with just outward success. And by that common standard, external religion, superficial righteousness, having a large church or a popular ministry or a successful program in some people's eyes is considered fruitful. But the Bible nowhere equates fruit with superficial external behavior or results, which deceivers and hypocrites as well as non-Christian cults can duplicate. Instead, Scripture defines fruit in terms of spiritual qualities. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul reminded the Galatians, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those Christ-like traits mark those through whom his life truly flows. The Bible also defines sacrificial love and meeting the needs of others as fruit. Referring to the monetary gift he was collecting for the needy believers of Jerusalem, Paul wrote to the Romans, 
Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go by way of Spain. Acknowledging the Philippians' financial support of his ministry, Paul told them, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So that teaches us that supporting others who are in need is a tangible expression of love, which is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So, what does it mean to be pruned? When I think of prune, the first thing that pops into my mind is a cure for constipation. But that's a different kind of prune. And we had guests too, you're thinking. In Greek, the word for prune is katharizo, which means to cleanse, make clean, or purify. It has given us our English word catharsis. Now, normally this word would indicate the act of cleansing the vine or anything harmful, such as insects, moss, and so on. At all the events, though, here the Father said to be doing a work of removal, removing everything that would prove detrimental to the most fruitful harvest in our lives. In a vineyard, fruitfulness is not simply desirable, it is absolutely imperative. That is the whole point of the vineyard. That is what the vineyard is for. Pruning is to ensure that this takes place. Left to itself, a vine will produce a good deal of unproductive growth. And so for maximum fruitfulness, extensive pruning is essential. Now this is a suggestive figure of the Christian life. The vine dresser prunes the branches in two different ways. He cuts away the dead wood that could breed disease and insects, but he also cuts away good living tissue so that the life of the vine will not be so dissipated that the quality of the crop will be jeopardized. In fact, the vine dresser will even cut away whole bunches of grapes so that the rest of the crop will be of, of an even higher quality. And that teaches us this morning that God wants both quality and quantity. The pruning process is the most important part of the whole enterprise. And the people who do it must be carefully trained or they have the ability to destroy an entire crop. Some vineyards invest two or three years in training the pruners so that they know where to cut, how much to cut, and even at what angle to make the cut. But for our purpose, the interest is in what happens with people rather than with vines. The action of the Father is such as to cleanse his people so that they may live even more fruitful lives. But why do we need to be pruned. You see, John 15 clearly teaches that pruning is always good for us. Malcolm Muggeridge, in his book, Jesus Rediscovers, writes, Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel over-important and self-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. So I ask us this morning, what is involved in pruning and do we want it? 
What's involved in pruning? Pain. Pruning always hurts. David said in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And then in verse 71, he said, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Sometimes the pain of pruning comes because of our own sins. But at other times, it's simply because we are bearing abundant fruit and God wants us to bear even more fruit. Whatever the reason for pruning, our natural cells always wants to escape it. No one naturally wants the knife. And if you do, see me for counseling. Nevertheless, the result of God's pruning will be beneficial for us and for him. The greatest judgment God could ever bring to a believer would be to let him alone and let him have his or her own way. But because God loves us, he prunes us and encourages us to bear more fruit for his glory. If the branches could speak, they would confess that the pruning process hurts, but they would also rejoice that they will be able to produce more and even better fruit. And also know this, your Heavenly Father is never closer to you than when He's pruning you. Now sometimes He will cut away that dead wood that might cause trouble, but often He will cut away good living tissue that is robbing us of spiritual vigor. Pruning does not simply mean spiritual surgery that removes what is only bad. It can also mean cutting away the good and the better so that we might enjoy the best that God has for us. Yes, pruning hurts, but it also helps. We may not enjoy it, but every one of us needs it. In spiritual terms, this obviously refers to God's work in removing that which is spiritually detrimental in the Christian's life. It means to have our bad habits and attitudes stripped away. It means to have our priorities reordered and our values changed. And at times, it may mean the removal of friends who are hindering rather than advancing our spiritual growth. The Father prunes the true branches by removing anything that would sap their spiritual energy and hinder them from the fruit he wants in their lives. His pruning involves cutting away anything that limits righteousness, including the discipline that comes from trials, suffering, and persecution. Puritan Evan Hopkins writes, If a piece of iron could speak, what could it say of itself? I am black, I am cold, and I'm hard. But put it in a furnace, and what a change takes place. It has not ceased to be iron, but the blackness is gone, and the coldness is gone, and the hardness is gone. It has entered into a new experience. The fire and the iron are still distinct, and how complete is the union now that they are one? If the iron could speak, it could not glory in itself, but in the fire that makes and keeps it a bright and glowing mass. So it is, says Hopkins, for the believer. How does the Father prune us? Sometimes he just uses his word to convict 
and to cleanse us. The word purge or cleanse in John 15.2 is the same as clean in John 13.10. Now sometimes he must chasten us. At the time it hurts whenever he removes something precious from us. But as we see the spiritual crop that is produced, we see that the Father always knows what he is doing. What should happen is that every one of us should first of all want to draw nearer to God and be more productive. After that, as the harmful things begin to be cut away, it's as if sometimes we don't even feel as if they're going. It's a case of maturing, really, similar to a little girl giving up dolls. What do I mean? No one ever has to ask a girl to give up her dolls. When she is young, she will play with them. But as she grows older, she'll become interested in some young man and after this, the dolls are just kid stuff. The girl does not give up the dolls. The dolls give up the girl because she has grown into a higher sphere of influence and experience. In the same way, as we grow close to the Lord Christ, the dead wood and the parasites will begin to fall away from our own lives. And that's a good thing. Because left to ourselves, we will naturally gravitate to, for, to gratifying our own sinful flesh. I know that in my own life, myself wants what myself wants. But I also know it's only when I decide to put aside my own wants and desires and make Christ my utmost desire that in that moment, he will begin to show me even more of himself. And only then will I begin to see the spiritual fruit he is trying to bring about in my life. So I do have a part to play in this as you do. Stuart Briscoe tells a story about the cuckoo bird. Now the European cuckoo bird is much larger than the cuckoo birds that are in the United States. And the mother European cuckoo bird doesn't build a nest. It flies around until it sees another nest with eggs in it with no mother around. The cuckoo quickly lands, lays an egg there, and then flies away. Now the mother thrush, whose nest has been invaded, comes back and begins to get to work hatching these eggs. It apparently does not bother her that there is an extra egg in the nest. Now what happens? Four little thrushes hatch, but one large cuckoo bird hatches. Now the cuckoo is two to three times larger than the thrush. And so when mother thrush brings to the nest one large juicy worm, she finds four tiny thrush mouths and one huge cuckoo mouth. Guess which bird gets the worm? So a full-size thrush ends up feeding a baby cuckoo that is already three times larger than she is. Over the time, the bigger cuckoo gets bigger and bigger and the smaller thrushes get smaller and smaller. Stewart says that when he was a kid, he could always find where there was a cuckoo nest. You just walked along the hedgerow until you found dead little thrushes, which the cuckoo would throw out one at a time. Spiritually, we are similar to the thrushes and the cuckoo bird. We can either feed our spirit or we can feed our flesh. And that is entirely up to each one of us in here. But just know this. The one that we feed the most 
will be the one that dominates our lives. This is why we need God to continually go about the process of pruning us. Much of what is noble in us has been accomplished by God's pruning of our lives. As we finish up today, a character in C.S. Lewis's Chronicle of Narnia series is a kid named Eustace Scrub, a selfish, immature, miserable boy who only thinks of himself. In the voyage of the Dawn Treader, he not only finds himself in a dragon's cave, he discovers that he himself has turned into a dragon. He attempts to remove the scales but cannot do so by himself. Finally, the lion, which is the Christ figure, comes and Eustace describes what happens next. This is what the lion said. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The, verse, the first tear he made was so deep that I thought it went right down into my heart. And when he began peeling and pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. That is how it is, my friends, with pruning. We would rather do it ourselves, maybe, but we cannot. And even if we could, we would not remove what really has to go and what really should be removed. The truth is what is noble and attractive in our lives has come from the cutting that we would have avoided. James' experience taught him this truth well. I like this paraphrase. Dear brothers, is your life full of difficulties and temptations? Then be happy. For when the way is rough, your patience has a chance to grow. So let it grow. And don't try to squirm out of your problems. For when your patience is finally in full bloom, then you will be able to be ready for anything, strong in character, full and complete. So finally, what else do we need to know about pruning this morning? As I said earlier, God's hand is never closer to us than when he prunes his vine. During those times of severest cutting in our own lives, when to us he may seem to have already departed, he is in actuality closer than he has ever been. His pruning may pain us, but it will never ultimately harm us. Really, when the gardener does his pruning well, he leaves little more than the vine. In the same way with us this morning, the more we are pruned, the more Christ there will be in each of our lives. And also, the branch does not bear fruit for itself, but for others. And so the life that has been trimmed by the hand of God sustains others. And I think we would all like to have that happen in our lives. And so I say, Lord, please prune me. Let us pray. Father, I so understand so much of this. This just isn't theoretical to me. This is all... Uh, practical things that you have done in my life and are still doing in my life and will continue to do in my life until the day you take me home. Lord, none of us want to be pruned especially. We're all adverse to pain. But let us see the greater good of what happens 
and give us the desire, Lord, that we would choose your pruning over just living our small, conceited little lives where we only have tiny bits of happiness when what you want to give us is joy unspeakable. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.